0: And I think as coaches, we fall into the ego trip of thinking that our students can only progress because of our intelligence, our brilliance, our methods. And that if we adopt the frame, that everyone who comes to us has the ability to solve their own problems, that they can self-organize their movement, we become profoundly more powerful. And then we understand that our role is just to facilitate that journey, just to give a little bit more, structure, a little bit more guidance, and a really emotional support, right? The way that you feel as you're doing things has a lot to do with how well you'll self-organize them and how long you're likely to stick around with the process. So I think that, you know, this is a different lens on a similar thing. Respecting the capacity of the student to self-organize and organizing your teaching around that.
1: Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys, as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. I was really excited about this episode. This is a lecture that I gave at the Art of the Retreat this year and then again at our Autumn Retreat, um, and that's where we captured it. This is a lecture on ecological dynamics and motor learning and how they interact with natural movement and parkour and how the two things reinforce each other and give each other insight and how they teach us really about the optimal way to engage in skill acquisition and teaching. And so if you're a coach or, uh, you know, um, or a teacher of movement, you're going to find a lot uh, in this, in this lecture. It's really, uh, really been well received by those who've seen it already. Um, So I'm excited to share it with you guys Uh, before we get to it, a real quick housekeeping. So we are in the middle of launching our retreats for 2020, Uh, we're going to be making everything public on Wednesday. This comes out on Monday. Uh, So if you're interested in coming to Return to the Source or one of our seasonal retreats, you want to get on a wait list right now, you can follow the link in my bio to do that. Um, If you see this after Wednesday, you can go ahead and schedule a call right away. Um, We have very limited spots. As of this moment, it looks like we have seven spots left for Return to the Source. Um, We've got a few more for the seasonal retreats. Um, you know, we have a lot of returning students and that's why we don't have so many spots available and we keep the, the spots down to about 20 people. So if you're interested in that, I just really highly encourage you to take action as soon as possible. Um, so I just wanted to let you know that. Uh, lots of great stuff's been published recently on our website and uh, via all, all our social media. So if you haven't tuned into what we're doing recently, uh, check it out, um, but without further ado, Ecological Dynamics and Natural Movement.
0: Hey guys, so what we've got for you, really cool piece of content. This is a talk that was filmed at our autumn retreat. So we're gonna be going over the primary pedagogical principles, the teaching principles behind the Evolve Move Play method. So we're going to be reviewing kind of how we came to understand these principles, the history of the motor learning theory behind them, and then how we can apply them and what they imply about optimal learning, both for a student and also a teacher. So this is about an hour-long talk. Um, It gets into some pretty deep concepts, but it's really well illustrated. Um, I do reference some things that people experienced at the event. which should be totally understandable, even if you haven't been here. So enjoy, and we'll see you guys next time. Okay, so as requested, we're going to be going over our pedagogy and trying to explain a little bit more in detail some of the concepts that came out during our stuff, hopefully implicitly and here and there explicitly. We talked about... Our why, right? What are we oriented towards? We talked about the what that we're trying to do with you guys, the benefits that accrues to you and the, the tools that we use, but you know, there are different ways to use a tool, right? A sword can be used in multiple ways. You know, you can teach a vault many different ways. And one of the things that you need to optimize in training people is how you achieve your training effect. So, You can train someone in natural movement in a completely unnatural way, right? In a way that is not congruent with human nature, is not congruent with the way that we learn. So our pedagogy is based on the idea that you need to train a human like they are a human, right? An analogy that I like is, imagine that you had a wolf, right? But you didn't know anything about wolves, right? and you're like, I need to make this wolf the most athletic, healthiest, most functional wolf that I could possibly make it. But you didn't have any context for how a wolf behaved in nature. All you read was strength and conditioning literature. So you're like, we're gonna bulk this wolf up. Yeah, strap us, right? sled to him. Five reps and underneath, right? 90%, we're gonna make this wolf so powerful doing sled pulling. Would that optimize the health and function of a wolf? I don't think so, because a wolf is an animal that evolved for thousands, millions of years as a running animal, an animal that chases other animals down, right? That's their power. So we should train in a way that is congruent with that. So in the same sense that we should train the things that we evolved for, we should also train in the way that we evolved to learn. So I'm gonna take you guys back for a second to my own discovery of this in a sense, and where it came from. So I, I told you guys the story of how Carrie Strug inspired me, and I started taking gymnastics, right? Um, and I eventually was hired to coach gymnastics, and gymnastics is a pedagogy that has been developing for something like 400 years, I believe. If you go back to Jan um, and the German origins of, of gymnastics, um, and it, it's beautiful in certain ways. It's very step-by-step. It's very elegant and methodical. Today you come in as a four-year-old and I'm going to have you doing backward rolls on a wedge mat so that you can then do backward rolls on the ground. So then you can learn a back extension roll, which takes you to a back extension roll to handstand, which is the same body mechanics as a back giant, a full circle backwards on a high bar. So I understand that I'm using this thing to build you up. Um, I'd only been teaching gymnastics for two years when I first discovered parkour. so I didn't even understand exactly the, the, the methodology that I was really using, but I seemed to have a knack for breaking things into pieces and being able to help people build things up from pieces. So the, the analogy I give or the specific example I'll give is the climb up in parkour. So in parkour, um, you often face a situation where you're hanging from a wall with your feet on the wall and you need to get up to, to your hands underneath you and then get your feet on top of the wall. At the time, this was considered a very difficult skill for athletes. There was very few people who could do this back in 2006, 2007 in the United States. And, um, and we really didn't understand what was happening in it. A symmetrical climb up was hard. So I knew of a couple guys who I had seen do it consistently. There's probably a few others, but uh, Tyson did them well, Levi did them. Ryan was probably already doing them well Um, and I saw both Levi and Tyson teach by telling people to put both their feet on the wall and push on the wall. And then when I saw them performing the movement, what they did was drop one leg and drive their knee up as hard as they could. So there was a implicit understanding that they had of how to actually perform this skill that wasn't expressed explicitly right they couldn't describe what they did um, and we've talked about this idea that you have these four layers of knowledge you have the propositional can I describe effectively what the skill looks like the procedural can I actually embody it and do it and have the timing and the rhythm and the coordination and those two things are not necessarily connected you can have wonderful uh, procedural or propositional knowledge and um, the, the internet has been amazing for creating fitness experts and movement experts whose only expertise is semantic, right, because I can go read the best thoughts of all the smartest people around movement and be like, ah, I really understand this, but I'm not actually doing it. Um, Tyson used to call these forum heroes, right? You sound really smart, but then when you actually move with them, you're like, you don't, do you even train? Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you even lift, bro? Um, so, so we had this, this, you had that. And then on the flip side, you can know very well how to do something and not be able to how to be able to describe what you're doing. Um, I told you guys about climbing trees. I'm a big guy. I climb around in trees. I don't injure the trees. I take other people that climb around in the trees. They injure the trees. And I couldn't understand why. It was because I had intuitive knowledge that had been generated as a child that had never been made explicit. So part of the art of coaching is basically being able to pull the knowledge up to the explicit, but then also, you what you really want is to create the unconscious competence in the athlete so they don't have to think about it all the time. So anyways, um, I had this ability to break things down. And so I, I structured our curriculum around progressions. How do I make take a bunch of little pieces and build them up to a skill that an athlete can use. And so I would have people, um, say, get down on the ground and do you know, a step fault position, right? One hand, one foot, and the leg through. And I'd have them do that before I allowed them to go over a wall, right? Um, and I'd have cues and lots of ways to fix different things. And I was really proud. I thought that we had the best system around for teaching these things. Um, and then one day I went out into, or then I left Parkour Visions and I went to start teaching my stuff in nature because I'd been training in nature for years and that's what I was passionate about. And all of a sudden people would do step faults because they had to get over something and they wouldn't know that they were doing a step fault, and they wouldn't have been taught anything about step faults. And I was like, wait, I had all of this, this model for how to teach a step fault that was irrelevant, right? All I actually needed to do was put them in the right environment and say, go over that. And they'd start figuring it out. So that was actually very uncomfortable at first. Cause it's like, well, what is my role as a teacher? All right, and I think a lot of us fall into this idea that a role as a teacher is to take propositional knowledge and put it in somebody else's head. And maybe we recognize that it's not the same as the procedural knowledge, but we don't have any actual, or, um, yeah, but we don't have any actual plan for how those things translate effectively. We don't have a method from bringing one into the other. And um, I think that we like you guys, I imagine many of you have had the experience of having a teacher who's given you way too many words, way too many technical instructions, and you just get confused. Or maybe as a teacher, you've been like, oh, I have this really brilliant, eloquent ability to describe this skill, and you lay out all this stuff that you're excited about to your student, and clearly their movement gets worse. All right? So, why do we make this error? You know, there's lots of potential reasons, but I think one of them is that we live in a world of metaphors. And we don't understand how much metaphor actually encompasses our thinking, right? So we, do you understand what I'm saying? Are you standing under it? You know, do you have, an, uh, you know, can you grasp what I'm trying to teach you guys? We have this physical metaphor. And often we think about ourselves and our world through the lens of the most powerful technologies, right? So when clocks became a big thing, people started thinking of the world, the universe is operating like a clock, right? If we understand all the little inputs, we could predict what would happen in the future just like a clock. Now we live in the era of the machine and the computer. So how many of you guys have thought about your brain as like a computer, right? Um, Or how, how many of you guys have read about biomechanics? We are machines. So we operate under the metaphor of the body as machine and the mind as a computer. And then within this metaphor, we have tended to think of motor skills as like a program that you write into the computer that is then, um, from, in a top-down way, sent to the machine and then just operated. right? And so in the same way that you build a machine by building up a series of component parts, that's how you think about how a motor skill is created. Um, But it turns out you're not a machine, your body does not operate like a machine, and your brain is not a computer, right? So one of the big, uh, like one of these, one of the fundamental observations about why this fails was made by um, a great Neuropsychologist, uh, neurophysiologist, sorry, Nikolai Bernstein in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, described what we call the degrees of freedom problem. So, I mentioned this idea when we were all playing the, uh, with the balls on, uh, on Thursday, right? Machines are designed so that there is one degree of freedom in each component, right? There's very, there are some machines that may have two, there's almost no machines that have three, right? Generally, there's one degree of freedom. So a piston can only move up and down. The more degrees of freedom something has, the more difficult it is to control, right? The more it requires to control. So imagine like having a, uh, uh, like a broom handle sticking out from your waist and having a series of a bunch of rubber bands they were using to guide and control the broom handle and how inconsistent the motion would be, right? That's basically what your muscles are, right? That's basically your bone is that broom handle. Your muscles are these, these gummy compliant strings that hold that thing together, right? And they have many, many degrees of freedom. So we can think about degrees of freedom from the sense of like the balls and all the different ways that they can move in the circle. But we can also think about it at the level of the motor control itself. So if I bring my... my uh, my fingers to my mouth, right? We're eating right now. You bring your fingers to your mouth to put some food in your mouth or to grab something. Um, Think about, okay, how much should this joint move? 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 How much should that joint move? Think about how many degrees of freedom are there, right? Ooh, look look at this amazing thing. This is not like the components of a machine. And then your body is built, so the flip side of the, of the problem of the degrees of freedom, which is that it's a very difficult challenge, is the, the positive aspect is that you have many layers of redundancy, right? So you have seven muscles that impact flexion at the elbow. Now imagine if, if you had to, every time that your brain decided to do this, it had to search the entire space of potential degrees of freedom here, 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 and here, and then say which muscles will optimally do that job. That runs you into a problem uh, that's described in like AI research as combinatorial explosion. Right? Functionally, the, that search space is almost infinite. Right? So an analogy that uh, John Verveke gives that I really like is chess. When you play chess, on average, there are 30 legal moves available per turn. And there are 60 turns on average per game, which means that the pathways available within a game of chess are 30 to the 60. That's a really big number. It's so big, it's comparable to the number of atoms in the universe, right? So imagine if you wanted to solve the problem of chess perfectly, you would have to be able to examine all of those pathways. So there's a a distinction that's made in this research between a well-defined problem and an ill-defined problem. And basically, an ill-defined or a well-defined problem is one where the search space is completely searchable. And when you can completely search the, uh, the search space, you can have an algorithmic solution. An algorithm means something that derives a precisely correct solution, right? The vast majority of our lives, including the way our brains and our bodies operate, are based on ill-defined problems. That's when you face combinatorial explosion, the search space is impossibly large, and you have to operate off of heuristic control. So a heuristic is something that guides you to a good enough solution. Right? So when you play chess, right, you have a few heuristics. Control the center of the board. Get your queen out early. Castle your king. Okay? Those will help you win a lot of the time. Right? Versus someone who doesn't have those heuristics. Now, as you become more sophisticated and you understand the game of chess more, you can start to recognize the heuristics that the person across from you is focusing on. And then you can play new games that manipulate their heuristics. The opposite of heuristics or the the flip side of a heuristic is a bias. Stereotypes are heuristic biases, right? So the very things that can lead us to solve the problems, the only way we can solve the problems that we have to solve are also the things that can lead us into self-deception, right? Thinking about the body as a machine and the mind as a computer is a simplification that gives us certain ways of thinking that can be very effective. And it also guides us in ways that can mislead us. So it's important to understand we have all of these degrees of freedom in our movement, which makes us unlike machines. And in order to control that, what we have to have is extreme um, integration of action and perception, right? So traditionally, you might think walking is a motor program, right? My brain says, walk, and I take a step, and it's the same thing every time. But it can't be the same thing every time because the conditions are different every time, which means my brain has to be able to have certain heuristics that guide walking and then the ability to be adaptable at all times. It needs to recognize relevance in the environment and then shift my behavior accordingly. And that doesn't just happen at the b- level of the brain, it actually happens basically at the level of the, the individual motor uh, unit, and then at the joint level, and then at the spinal level. So you have loops of communication and action that are constantly guiding you, right? So the way that you organize action is not, I am doing a Kong vault, it's, I want to get over this thing, I want to guide myself over my hands, you have a few heuristics that guide a Kong vault, and then as your hands are swinging and everything, your body is perceptually picking up what is happening and then it is steering the action as it is happening so what peter oh, or what um bernstein described had been described in some sense in mathematics and in other fields already and it was a dynamical system right a dynamical system is something that um that doesn't operate like a machine it's not clockwork generally uh dynamical systems are described as having emergent and nonlinear f- effects right so you 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 put in an input and you don't know exactly what the output will be the most um, like the, the way this is described mathematically is essentially you set up an equation that has like two engines in it or two cost functions in it right S- and they're oppositional right they're not adversarial but they're oppositional they 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 do different things so a really classic example of this is evolution right and it's really like everything about us is kind of rooted in this evolutionary process and the way that we're built is basically replicates the way that evolution happened and what evolution does is it has an engine that generates variation which is mutation and sexual selection or sexual reproduction Mutation gives us new variants, and uh, reproduction shuffles the variants in every generation so that we're a little different every time. We have different iterations, and we see how those behave in reference to the environment. And then we have selection. The environment, um, we have natural selection, which is the environment, whether you survive, and sexual selection, which is other people, and whether they decide that you should have children or not. Um, And there's lots of lots of things that go on with that. So you have natural selection, sexual selection, those winnow variation. So you have one thing that's constantly generating variation and one thing that's constantly getting rid of variation and through that all of the natural world came into being. Which is completely unpredictable by looking at its component parts, right? You cannot look at carbon and nitrogen and you know magnesium and all the little things that go into making a human body and be like, oh yeah, Play this out over a few billion years and you're going to get human beings. And you're going to get the neuronal structure of human beings which have as much complexity as the entire universe. That's, a, that's emergence. We were just discussing din- dynamical systems, right? And the idea that your body is essentially a dynamical system. It is not a linear um, process. And building skills that way won't necessarily work. So, um, if we go back to the example that I give of the climb-up, right? So you can think of the climb-up mechanically, right? What are the elements of a climb-up? So maybe there's a foot that pushes on the wall, and then there's the drive of the knee, and then there's the pull, and then there's the press-down, and then there's the kick-up. And you could, you could isolate all the components, have people tr- uh, drill those, give them lots of specific cues to fix that, and um, eventually you'll, you'll probably produce the skill. And that can seem very elegant, like, I really understand this skill, I can break it down into pieces, it's methodical, it looks nice. But there's this research on motor learning that talks about something called reinvestment. And that's when you have absorbed and developed a coordinated skill, but under pressure, it breaks down into its component pieces. And what the research actually shows is that generally, if we can learn a skill in whole practice rather than part practice, that skill is more robust and more transferable right so it is better potentially to have someone when they're doing a climb up do scale the climb up by making it easier in other ways by changing the task parameters but as long as it (laughs) as long as it um, allows them to express the pattern than it is to break it into pieces So that's that's a little bit about how our nervous systems don't really operate like motor patterns. So another component of this is what's called the ecological psychology method uh, um, model. And so now there's like dynamic systems in motor theory, and there's ecological uh, ecological psychology. But a lot of people just put these together as ecological dynamics. They're very closely connected. Prior to um, so. Nikolai Bernstein sort of brings dynamical systems into movement. Um, I don't know if he actually used that terminology. Ecological psychology starts with James J. Gibson Uh, and J.J. Gibson basically prior to him people tended to look at perception, how we view the environment internally. They asked what's there that does the perceiving. And he said maybe we should ask the question the opposite way. What's in the environment that allows us to perceive? So Um, traditionally again we had this sort of uh, mechanical model of how we perceived things so for instance um, imagine someone hitting a baseball and the outfielder is out there and has to field the baseball so there's a one model of how they do that is that they see the baseball come off the bat and they create a model in their brain of where the baseball is going to come down okay that's model based perception the other is that there's something in the, in the ball's movement that you can continuously track as you do that tells you where the ball's going to arrive. And that's what's called the um, online processing. So Gibson basically described why it makes a lot more sense that, that we have uh, online processing, that we are picking things up in the environment. So another one is like, if you're, if you're going to catch a ball or hit a ball as it's coming towards you, what you're doing is you're measuring the change in its size relative to the change, uh, relative to the horizon, If you have that information, then you can effectively catch the ball. So what he then described is that the way that we perceive the world is made up of how it affords things. And this became very important in understanding things in um, AI research. So, we used to think, okay, I'm going to program this computer to recognize cups and categorize cups. And I just need to get the right parameters in the computer to get it to recognize a cup. But that turned out to be incredibly hard. We very easily create a category of cups but it's very hard to program a computer that gets the parameters right. But they discovered that if you give that computer an arm that can grasp a cup, then it can train itself to recognize what a cup is much more easily than if you just try to program in a cup description into its brain. So what Gibson basically described is that we don't really see a cup. We see what a cup affords us. And it is a relevant category to us because we have action capabilities that allow us to engage with it and it fulfills functions for us. So a cup can be ceramic, a cup can be plastic, a cup can be metal, a cup can be different shapes, a cup can have, you know, a, a um, ooh, handle <laughs> or no handle. And all of it just looks like a cup to us and we don't think about that. But essentially, what a cup is, is it's the combination of the affordance of being able to grasp it easily, the affordance of it being hollow and being able to contain liquid. And that's m- relevant to us because we have a motivational frame of thirst. Right? So we see how things are relevant to fundamental motivational frames and what they afford us. When we are, um, you know, if I am tired, I've been training all day and I come out here. This affords me sitting down. So it's a chair or a bench, right? But if I see a snake over here that's poisonous and I need to go that way, I don't care that it's a bench. It's being a bench is completely irrelevant. What I care is it's in my way of getting away from that snake, right? Uh, Jordan Peterson gives a great great example of how we, um, we see the significance of things before we categorize them. And we're more motivated by their significance than their category. Right? Have you ever, you know, you can imagine that you kind of hit your snooze button a few too many times, and then finally you open your eyes and you're 30 minutes late for work, and you have a really big presentation, and so you speed out of your house. You're going down the street and you come to a green light, but at the green light, there's a little old lady in a walker going very slowly across it. Now is your emotional reaction, ah, here is a little old lady, right? She represents the category of little old ladies, like my grandmother, who's always been making me pumpkin pie and apple juice, right? It's like, no, she's in my way. I hate her. God damn it. Get out of my way, you stupid old lady. Right? Euthanasia. (laughs) 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 We see things as they're relevant to the motivational frames that we're operating from, and whether they afford us what we need or impede us, right? So we used to think maybe you see a cliff and you infer that you could fall off of it. But what you see is a thing you could fall off of and you categorize that as a cliff. So once you kind of have this realization then you think very differently about what motor learning looks like, right? Because if I practice this motor pattern here in this, you know, like I'll give you the classic example, super linear pedagogy. In order to be good at fighting, I have to have a beautiful, perfect motor pattern of punching. Okay. Bruce Lee famously said, fear not the man, who's practiced a thousand punches. Fear the man who's practiced one punch a thousand times. I don't really fear either because a thousand's not that many, but call it 10,000, 100,000. But the man you should fear isn't either of those men. It's the man who's practiced one punch a thousand different ways. Because it's in experiencing a variety of different circumstances that you hone the ability of your nervous system to recognize affordances as they arise. This actually tells me nothing about when I can punch somebody, right? When can I punch somebody and not get hit back? When can I punch someone and know that their face is gonna be there when the punch lands? Practicing the pattern contains no information. So one of the things that people who do this type of research talk about a lot is coupling. You want to make sure that your training couples the movement patterns that you want to express with the environments in which you want to uh, express them. Keep it coupled. So this has evolved into a specific approach to motor learning called the constraint-led approach. The idea here is the the role of a coach is not to provide explicit instructions to a student, right? You're not a lecturer (laughs) opposing uh, though I am at this moment, um, but the primary role of the coach is to manipulate environments such that they optimally afford the student the potential to self-organize movement effectively. Now, I've been giving you guys a really technical breakdown of this, but I want to go back for a second and just recognize a couple moments, right? So I took people from training in nature to, from training in the, uh, gym to training in nature and what i recognized was that they self-organized movement much more effectively all of a sudden i didn't use that language but it was like huh that's weird so i started leaning into it and then actually was one of my students michael tankovich who came to me and said are you familiar with um dynamic systems and constraint-led approaches to learning uh he's a pt and athletic trainer for the seattle seahawks and i wasn't Uh, around the same time a good friend of mine todd hargrove whose books i always recommend also wrote an article on dynamic systems and motor learning. And so that kind of hit me. Um, and it was interesting because at the time I was kind of exhausted from learning stuff. So I just like absorbed the, the most basic layer of it and started playing with it. And I found a lot. And then it was only later that I dove deep into doing the research, but I, I continued to get benefits in it. And around the same time, I went to a, uh, a workshop uh, that I co-led with my friend, Simon Thacker, an Ancestral Retreat in Australia. And there was a woman there, Amy Louise, who led a co-counseling workshop. And in the co-counseling exercise, the exercise was sit in front of somebody and they're gonna tell you what's on their heart, what's difficult for them in that moment. And your job is, you just have two jobs. One is you have to adopt the frame that they have the ability to overcome the problem that they're describing to you. You don't need to do anything other than allow them space to go through their process. And so you're not going to say anything. You're just going to sit there and give somebody the regard that you believe that they have the ability to overcome something. And I think as coaches, we fall into the ego trip of thinking that our students can only progress because of our intelligence, our brilliance, our methods. And that if we adopt the frame, that everyone who comes to us has the ability to solve their own problems, that they can self-organize their movement, it, we become profoundly more powerful. And then we understand that our role is just to facilitate that journey, just to give a little bit more um, structure, a little bit more guidance, and a really emotional support. Right? The way that you feel as you're doing things has a lot to do with how well you'll self-organize them and how long you're likely to stick around with the process. So I think that, you know, this is a different lens on a similar thing. Respecting the capacity of the student to self-organize and organizing your teaching around that. So that's the constraint-led approach to, to, uh, to learning. And it ties into this idea that also comes out of the motor learning research of intrinsic versus extrinsic feedback. So intrinsic feedback is something that is within you, right? Extrinsic feedback is something that is given to you from outside, right? So um, if you do a backflip and you land like this, you have clear kind of intrinsic feedback that you weren't high enough in the air or you, you know, popped out of it too early. If I just tell you, ah, oh, your backflip's too low or you're throwing your head back. Those are extrinsic cues. Now, we tend to think as teachers that our role is to tell people what they're doing wrong as they're doing it or what they could do better. But a lot of times that can actually undercut your students' learning because it it guides them away from paying attention to their intrinsic feedback. So there's research that has looked at cueing somebody every time they do a movement, every fifth time they do a movement, and every tenth time they do a movement. And do you know what group improved best? Every tenth time. And which group improved the slowest? Every time. So then, this idea of intrinsic versus extrinsic feedback, I also think is congruent with and gets into another distinction that's been made in the motor learning research between external and internal cues. An external cue is one that orients you um, to the relationship between your body and the environment. An internal cue is one that orients you to the relationship between parts of your body. Right? So, if someone's jumping, telling them, jump as far as you can, that's environmental right That that's an external cue telling them that they need to get more glute activation to jump farther is an internal cue now if I if you know if he's doing a heavy squat or or a jump or whatever and I tell him activate your glutes more he will activate his glutes more but the coordination of all the other elements will be damaged by the attentional focus on the action of his glutes right and it is not The power of any one specific muscle that makes things work, it's the synergy of all these different muscle groups. So if you think about that, a lot of times what an external cue does is it attunes the athlete to the intrinsic information that will guide their movement. So a good external cue for a backflip is look at a point in the environment and keep your eyes on it. So your vision is an intrinsic source of information right if you can or uh, i really like the cue when you're doing a wall flip see your foot on the wall right that will fix a lot of problems with wall flips and it's very clear pass fail intrinsic information you saw it or you didn't right this is also a good cue it's harder to recognize right how long did i have to see it right but if you saw your foot on a wall flip you did a good job a lot of the time Cool. So that's, that's external versus internal cues. And when we get into external cues, there's kind of three um, dimensions of an external cue that make it work. There is uh, its direction, its distance, and its description. The, di- the direction component is where is the force being applied. So if we go back to the climb up, right? you're, you're, you're pushing your foot on a wall. right? What is the direction of force? Right? If you think about pushing down on the wall, your foot will slide out. Same thing on a tic-tac. Right? Charles failed on a tic-tac um, with me uh, uh, yesterday. His body defaulted to thinking about pushing down on the wall when he needed to think about leaning and pushing in on the wall. Okay? He needed his focus to be there or his organization to be there. Okay? So that's the direction the distance is where are you cueing someone relative uh um, relative to their body or also into what motivational frame right so one of the interesting que- uh, things that's been found in the motor learning is that more advanced athletes can handle cues that are further away so if I tell you to focus on that point there and you're doing backflips as a novice that actually may be too far away from your body and it may distract you from what's happening in your body and you may need to use something that is a closer cue to get that uh that movement to optimize um, the other thing about distance which is interesting is it actually ties into your motivational frames some athletes run better when they're running towards something, and some athletes run better when they're running away from something so you can do a simple test right have two athletes, one is a rabbit, one is a a, uh, a greyhound, right? The rabbit goes, the greyhound chases. And then you just ask the athletes, you know, you have them do both roles, and then you ask them, which feels better to you? Do you like being chased or do you like chasing? And you'll almost always, as a coach, agree that the athlete looks better when they're playing one role than the other. And then you can set up your cues based on that, right? So you're star- in the starting blocks and your cue can be, I want, you know, jump out of the starting blocks like your feet are on fire, right? right. Or it can be, get down that track because your mom's on fire at the end. <laughs> you got to turn her out, right? I used to do this um, uh, when I was doing wall runs and I was really trying to get really good at doing big high wall runs. I would imagine a terrorist holding my four-year-old niece over the edge of the wall run. And I had to get up there to prevent him from dropping her. That was pretty intense. <laughs> I mean, that kind of brings us to the idea of uh, description, right? Um, description is something that your, your motor learning system doesn't tend to respend, respond well to, um, to explicit verbal things, right? It likes images right so a classic thing in sprinting again is your shin angle right as I take off my first three steps out of the gate I should have like a 45-degree shin angle you might tell somebody that's actually really hard for you to calculate in your brain you don't know what that means but a cue that Nick, uh, Nick, um, uh, Nick Winkleman who um, is who I got a lot of this from uses is come out of the blocks like a jet plane not like a helicopter can you all imagine what that looks like? Right, that, that gradual rise from a horizontal to a more vertical, right? That's what you're looking for. Versus pop straight into a vertical. That organizes people extremely well. Okay, so when I do a climb up, my cue to myself is push the wall, push into the wall, rip the wall down. And then the swinging leg, This is the interesting one. There's not really a good natural external cue for the swinging leg. So you have to externalize the internal cue and you can do this. What I think about is drive my knee up like I'm gonna knock somebody out with it. Right? Now it has an intention and a direction. So that's how we use external cues. Okay, so we have been using this model for a long time now. Um, We've had amazing success. Some, Some of the things that we teach people feels like we we get through them way faster um, they're much safer we see less errors creep up once the athletes have them they don't regress nearly as often and then there are certain things where we do, we where we haven't found that that constraint-led approach has worked as well and so what i want you guys to recognize is this idea that all models are incorrect some models are useful so don't fall in love with your models right and don't let them become a dogma all this stuff is great information It's not definitive. There are places where it might fail you. So, um, recently this happened to me. I was working on a... uh, I I want to front flip through this really complex situation where I have to go through two trees that are slanted together like this and then over another tree branch here. It's like a seven-foot gap. Um. So, in order to do that, I need to get power like I get out of my Kong vault because I can easily Kong vault it. And if I used the same mechanics on my Kongwalt and got the height and just turned my hips over, I'd make it. However, when I split my feet to do a front flip, my body naturally wants to kick my back leg up. Because that's how I learned how to do that flip. So there's a distinction in acrobatics between a gather step takeoff where both feet push off the ground. And a uh, Webster style takeoff or aerial style takeoff where the back leg pendulums up to give your body rotation. So that... That pendulum can give you a lot of rotation, can make a very easy flip, but it won't give you height. So I needed to adjust and change those two things. So my first model was I will use a constraint. I'll use a low mat to flip over and then I'll just slowly increase the height of my mat. But I videoed it and I I could see that my my behavior just wasn't changing and I got to this point where I just couldn't get over the next higher mat. So I was kind of stuck, I played around with a few different things. Um, but then I had my friend Joey Adrian come to town and he's teaching a workshop and he asked me have you You can do a standing front off something, right? And I said yes. He's like have you tried doing a standing front with your feet separated? No, I hadn't done that. So then I did it boom. I'm just gonna stand here and do my standing front Okay, well when I do a, when a, the flip I want to do my arms operate like this for the standing front they operate like this So he's like, okay. We'll just do the well uh, do this take off Do the overthrow? And then once you feel comfortable pushing off both legs, you can add the underthrow. And after the end of one session, I was easily organizing the flip that had been taking me a long time to struggle with. So it turned out there was a place for the mechanical approach for this particular skill. Now I think that if we over rely on the mechanical approach, we're still going to run into the reinvestment problem. We're still going to be controlling things at the wrong level, but we have to recognize there are places and there are certain skills that work better. And I happened to be reading Bernstein's book on dexterity at the time, and he actually has a model that I think explains this very well. So I want to share that with you guys. So he breaks motor control down to four levels, and he tracks these developmentally and evolutionarily, right? So the first level is the level of tone, right? So we talked about this on the first day as we were doing all our little locomotion stuff, okay? A baby first needs to control the tone of their body in order to be able to sit upright, in order to do anything. The earliest animals only had to control their tone. But then we developed our spines, and we developed these big muscles that move us around, and we needed some control of that. We still didn't have very, we didn't have really well-developed sensory systems at this point, right? So this is what he calls, he calls this the level of muscular articular control. but I like the level of muscle synergy a little bit better. He talks about that a lot in those chapters because this is the level where the the synergy between like the glute and the lat are are controlled. a, A cool example of how this is developmental is a grasshopper jumps and has incredible muscle synergy but doesn't have any targeting. It doesn't know where it's going very well. The next level he called the level of space. This is targeted actions, grasping, reaching, throwing, striking. In order to do those things, we have to have a conceptual model in our brain of space around us and a map of the space around us. What's called peripersonal space in the motor learning research. So what, now the the level of tone is very deep in the brain. The level of muscle synergy is a little bit closer to that that frontal lobe and that uh, cortex, that prefrontal cortex where we do our thinking. And then the level of space is even closer. And then the last level is called the level of action. This is where we hold procedural information about skills that have to be built from component parts, right? Um, The example that Bernstein gives is basically how do you, is is lighting a cigarette, right? This is before uh, lighters. But right, you go through all the actions, you have to slide the box open, you have to pull the match out, you have to strike the match, you have to hold the cigarette, you have to apply the match, right? All those things, if they are not done in sequence, become meaningless. You can't do them the opposite way. So when you have to hold that sequence in mind, you call that the level of actions, right? So what I would say is, a lot of our basic locomotor movements, like, like running, jumping, basic vaults, they're controlled at level three, at the level of space, with a very strong um, automa- set of automations that come from the level of tone and the and that second level. But something like acrobatics, that's a little bit more complex, or complex fine motor actions, is controlled primarily at level four. And so the way that you communicate with an athlete is actually dependent on which level the control happens has to be. But what we've been doing as teachers is we've been Often treating all of these things as if they were operating at the level of actions and the example that I'll give of that is posture Right Have any of you guys here read the book supple leopard? Kelly starts a friend of mine. He's a really nice guy. I've learned a ton ton from him Um, I think the beginning of that book has some real problems and it starts with this idea that when you're just standing in place you need to um, squeeze your, uh, let's see, pull your shoulders back and down, right? Squeeze your glutes to set your pelvis neutral, and put 20% tension in your abs to stabilize your spine. I want everyone to stand up. Stand up and adopt that. Okay, so, shoulders back, shoulders down, okay? Squeeze your glutes, 20% abdominal tension, okay? Now, how fluid and ready to move do you feel?
1: just about ready to put okay. loaf. Okay,
0: <laughs> so... So what we've done is we've used the level of actions and what we've primarily spoken to is our prime mover muscles, which are not what's supposed to control our posture and our tone. So we've utilized the wrong structures, neurologically and physiologically... Guys, gotta got to get down and go over there. Um, to control it. And that's not going to set us up for success, movement-wise. Now, um I'll, everyone stand up again. Okay. So I can communicate to you in a way that is designed to communicate and cue at the level of tone. So what I'll ask you guys to do is imagine that your shoulders are balloons and they're floating out to the side of your body. And your head is a balloon and it's floating up. And then I want you to imagine this sense of rooting through your pelvis. Like you're connected deeply to the earth like you have deep roots okay now notice that your spine lengthened your shoulders adopted a similar position to the first position that we asked you to do but feel how much more relaxation you have in your body we are using the appropriate muscles to control posture now so the words you use have that kind of impact all right Knowing where the shoulders are supposed to be doesn't tell you how to get the shoulders there Back down Okay So with all this information in mind We have a model of how we coach right the first thing we do is we look at a problem Space and we explore it. We set a set of constraints go climb in a tree go over this go under that and we explore how you do that Then we repeat it, keep doing it, right? And then we isolate out the principles and the techniques that allow us to be most effective. Then we start integrating things back together. If you can do a really difficult jump, can you do it in connection with another jump? And the last, we add what we call aliveness, which is essentially just how many ways can we bring complexity into it, right? So that's the... The, um, the chasing games, the tag games. The, uh, we didn't play them, but one of our favorite games is games where we get in each other's way as we're trying to do this. One thing you'll see in parkour a lot is guys lining up for a jump and they start to overthink their run up. And you see them run up and choke. They balk a lot. And what's really funny is if you just get in front of the guy and mess with him, and then he has to run around you, all of times he'll do the jump fine because he's no longer thinking about it, right? He's organizing, he's paying attention to the optimal level of focus, and he's tapped into his flow state. So aliveness is a term that I got from um, a martial arts teacher, Matt Thornton. He recognized basically coming from a Jeet Kune Do background that Jeet Kune Do wasn't really working. And most traditional martial arts weren't really working when it came to actually being able to fight. And the things that were judo, boxing, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, Um, uh, Muay Thai, things like this, they all shared this common characteristic of they had some game that was completely free in the way that it was played, except for small safety flaws. It wasn't rehearsed. So when I practice my punch, it's a pattern, it's dead. When I play a game with him, I have to deal with his timing, his energy, and his rhythm. We can think of those as degrees of freedom. Right? And now we have a game that's combinatorial, explosive, like real life, and we can build our heuristics that allow us to be successful. Cool. We want to apply that to all the different types of movement that we use. How do we layer in the complexity that helps you recognize the information, in the environment that can allow you to organize movement effectively. So one of our huge themes is variation, 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 right? Don't practice the same punch. Don't practice even the same way of sparring all the time. Find new ways to look at it. Um, Because you don't, you know, we're training to be generalists. We don't know the exact problems that we're trying to face. So what we need is to make a system that allows us to identify the right heuristics faster and faster. Um, Robert took you guys through the OODA loop, right? Observe, orient, decide, and act. We are constantly having to do this. The faster we can make it towards orientation, the more ways we can look at a situation, the faster we can recognize what is relevance, the more effective we're going to be in movement and in life. This is beautifully described by Franz Bosch. If you imagine a motor task, right, you set out to do any motor task, hit a baseball, um, throw a punch, throw a football, do a jump, Some there's going to be certain control factors, certain heuristics that your body adop- adopts that allow you to consistently control that motor action. Now, what happens when your body is exposed to many variations is it allows it to notice the control factors that are similar between different iterations. Right? So, when I spar with Robert, it's different than when I spar with somebody else. Right. But some things are the same, and those things my nervous system uh, begins to recognize as the things that are most relevant, and then it can prioritize them. And what makes elite athletes really elite is the ability to basically create a hierarchy of what to pay attention to, and then clear pathways of where their attention can go, so they can recognize the landscape better than anybody else. And I think that's essentially what makes people effective in life. Um, that is a little bit about the bones of how we think about instruction with Evolve Move Play and um, the takeaway, how not to fuck up your students. The first thing to understand is if words are that powerful, right, and this can get you to fire your prime movers and a different thing gets you here, you have the power to actually interfere with your student's journey. Coaches don't think enough about that. As a teacher, our first, our first priority should be the Hippocratic Oath. First do no harm. If you don't know if your words will have a positive Im- impact on your student's growth, shut up. Second, your first priority, is, your student isn't going to grow because you're a brilliant intellect and you understand every little thing about a skill. Right. The first priority is emotional support of that student. If you create an environment in which they can self-organize because they feel good and they feel well taken care of, and they feel like they have a team of people and they get a tap into that flow state, that's where the people are gonna grow the most. Be careful with your words, right? Use these cues, this, uh, you know, understand intrinsic feedback, understand external uh, and internal cues, right? Understand how you use constraints. To build something and this is really key test it over and over again test it like it takes some courage as a coach to say ah oh, this cue that i just gave you did it actually work for you but how else are you going to know you want to train your students such that they'll give you real feedback and you want to continually seek it out
1: right Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.